The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. The Pharisees went off and plotted how they might entrap Jesus in speech. They sent their disciples to him with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are a truthful man, and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth, and you are not concerned with anyone's opinion, for you do not regard a person's status. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it lawful to pay the census tax to Caesar or not? Knowing their malice, Jesus said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin that pays the census tax. Then they handed him the Roman coin. He said to them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? They replied, Caesar's. At that he said to them, Then repay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and to God what belongs to God. The Gospel of the Lord. Over the past several weeks, we've been hearing in the Gospels how Jesus has given parables of the kingdom of God, kingdom of God, kingdom of God. It's coming. Who's going to get in? You, me. And he keeps speaking to the chief priests, the elders, and letting them know that their once perception of just getting into the kingdom of God may not be as easy or as available as they once thought. That's not to say the kingdom of God is not accessible, but it's to say that that presumption that they held being the chosen people of Israel is no longer adequate for entrance into heaven. And so now that creates a whole set of questions. What, what's required to get into heaven. What do I have to do? Heaven's not just a free thing I'm, I'm going to get into? Possibly not. Heaven, as it's understood, is being before the beatific vision of God, being before the, the completeness of God and worshiping him, giving him adoration. And so that requires an element of love and relationship. And what Jesus has shown in those parables is that the people that the chief priests and the elders kind of wrote off, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the Gentiles, the non-believers, those are actually the people God is going after as well. That it's not only the righteous, but even the sinner. But the sinner has to have repentance. The sinner has to have Contrition, they have to turn away from what they've done in order to say, Lord, I want you more than those things. So this is the culmination today. They've been hearing this, and they don't like it. They are upset. So they try to entrap Jesus in speech. Now, here's where things get really interesting. Because the Pharisees and the Herodians, who are now working together, have completely opposite political views. Right? The Pharisees are all about the Israelite faith, the Jewish traditions and customs. The Herodians are all about the Roman government. 
And so they actually are not, like, really great friends. They're not in good relationship. And yet they say, let's work together and let's defrocked Jesus. Let's just make him look like a fool. So their strategy is to try to trap him, right? We know, in hindsight, that they will utterly fail. But it's really funny to watch them try, you know? It's kind of funny to see them try. Even like some of these lines, you know, we're, we know you're not concerned about anyone's opinion, but give us your opinion. We know you don't care about anything. What they say, like, you're, you're a truthful man, but we're going to try to trick you. Like, it's just so, it's so blatantly bad. It's really funny. So what do they do? They see that if Jesus opposes the tax then the Herodians could charge him with treason, instigating a revolt against Rome. So if he rejects that, Rome can attack him. If he approves of the tax, the Pharisees can charge him as being an unlawful, unfavorable Jew, and they can reject all the things he said up to that point. They're trying to just say what he has done doesn't matter. They want to create scandal. So Jesus, knowing this, right, he straight up just calls him out from the beginning. Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? He just lays right into them. And then he, then he gets clever. He says, all right, show me the coin. And they show him the coin. It's got a picture of Caesar on it. It's got the inscription. The funny thing about money during that time is that, you know, particularly with the Roman, uh, the Roman denarius, the, the idea of that coin is it's only valuable as far as that empire has power. So outside of the Roman Empire, that coin means nothing. Even though it could be gold, it it doesn't mean as much. And so that's one element of that. The coin shows where there is authority and power going on. And and yeah, that's what they're under right now. They're under this Roman government. And so they have to concede to their rules and laws and obligations, just like we do in America under our American government or they do in Europe or whatever, or wherever a person lives, that we have to cooperate, eh, we have to collaborate with what's going on as citizens. So he shows them the text, says, yeah, all right, give that to Caesar. But then he goes a step further. So he says, repay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. In a very simple line here, what Jesus is saying is what belongs to God is everything, including that coin. And here's why that that plays out. Because Jesus is looking at this word of likeness, this word of image. And so the idea, again, like everyone has a duty, right? Everyone has a duty given of himself all the way back in Genesis, when we were created in the image and likeness of God, we all have a duty to give back to God because we are made in his image and likeness. Yes or yes? Excellent. And so, we also are citizens of a country, and we have responsibilities to give back to that country. Yes or yes? But which law supersedes the other? The divine law of God or the natural law of man? I'm going to say the law of God. Personal opinion. Also factual statement, so whatever. But Caesar, right, the Roman government, they are seen in that currency. God is seen through us. 
that's so cool. Like, if we're the image and likeness of God, like, God is seen through us. And so when we pay back, we are paying back ourselves. Where this doesn't necessarily get problematic, but it becomes a freeing is, think about our day-to-day interactions with the world. You know, how many of us you know, are going to go and get some food or groceries or, or gas or, or something, right? And we have to pay whatever we pay, and then there's that tax added on. How many of, truly, show of hands, how many people really think about the tax they have to pay when they're paying for gas? Two of you. Okay, three of you. All right. How many of you are really thinking about the tax you have to pay when you go out to eat dinner? A couple of you. Okay, you're, you're ruining my point. <laughs> the reality is, yeah, you, maybe you're thinking about it in some fa- factors you can get your total amount, but the reality is the majority of us don't think about it. We just do it. Like, have, have any of you rejected saying, I'm not paying the tax tonight for dinner? Doesn't look like it. Or has anyone, like, not paid the tax when they pay for their gas? Doesn't look like it, right? So we do it. And yet... That's what's due to the world. That's what's due to our government. And that is so less in importance than what's due to God, which is everything. So why, when it comes to things of God, do we start to say, do I really have to do that? Do I really owe you that? Do you really need that? If God has chosen the human person to show himself, then there's this uh, old homily from a a church father known as Severius in the 400s, and he talks about the virtues and their counter vices and how they help us to know God through our humanity. I just want to share it with you really quickly. So Severius says this, I do not swell up with the arrogance of pride, nor do I droop with the blush of anger, nor do I succumb to the passion of avarice, nor do I surrender myself to the ravishes of gluttony, nor do I infect myself with the duplicity of hypocrisy, nor do I contaminate myself with the filth of rioting, nor do I grow flippant with the pretension of conceit, nor do I grow enamored of the burden of heavy drinking, nor do I alienate by the dissension of mutual admiration, nor do I infect others with the biting of detraction, nor do I grow conceited with the vanity of gossip. These are all the vices. He says, I'm not going to let those take ownership of me. Rather, instead, I will reflect the image of God in that I feed on love, grow certain on faith and hope, strengthen myself on the virtue of patience, grow tranquil by humility, grow beautiful by chastity, am sober by abstention, and made happy by tranquility, and am ready for death by practicing hospitality. And he goes on to say, and it, it is with such inscriptions that God imprints his coins with an impression made neither by hammer nor by chisel, but has formed them with his primary divine intention. For Caesar required his image on every coin, But God has chosen man, whom he has created, to reflect his glory. 
yeah, we, we have the coin, we have the text, we, we do what's necessary, but Jesus reminds us in the gospel today there is something so much bigger and more important for us to contribute and give to, which is the Lord, and what he asks is everything. In the first reading from Isaiah, uh, we heard in no uncertain terms that God is the only one, that he's the only God, that's, that's all there is. And, and Isaiah, you know, he's battling all the, the uh, polytheistic cultures that have the, the many ideas of many different gods, and, and he's refuting that and saying there is one God, that's it. The God that we, that we give worship to, the God who's made us. And the funny thing about Cyrus is Cyrus, God uses him to grow and benefit the Israelite people even though he has himself no faith in God. And so why does that matter? Because God will use instruments, people, to promote and promulgate his mission even for the ones that reject him, even the ones that don't believe in him. And we see that with Pontius Pilate, right? a Roman governor who ends up crucifying Jesus, but at the same time knows that there's something truthful about him. So God uses us as his instruments. We are his coins. We are the ones that show his glory. So when we think about it, and we look at this idea of what is due to him and the taxes, we need to give him everything. We need to give him our best. We need to give him all that we can. And as individuals, we have to start asking the question, why do I give him less? Why do I give him my average, my mediocrity, my, my less than best? If, again, generally speaking, we don't intensely think about the daily taxes we pay, we just do it, then why are we so why are we so um, what's the word I want? Frugal about what's owed to God. Uh, Venerable Fulton Sheen, I, I quoted him last week, he said that if he was not Catholic and he was looking for the true church in the world, he'd look for the church that was most hated. Hated by the world. And thinking about that and reflecting on that for myself, and in, in just in the, the journey of becoming Catholic, if I, had to, if I had to pick out the true church, I would pick the church that demanded something from me. And why do I say that? Because in the exploration of becoming Catholic, I investigated the other Christian faiths and denominations and, and, and what have you, not faiths, but denominations. And the reality was, they, they wanted maybe a little something, but there was never a great demand. You know, it's like, hey, come to church, sit in your pew, listen to some music, pray some prayers, then go home. There was never like a, a great demand asked, it seemed. And so like, what does that look like in our faith? Well, if I fall, if I sin, if I do something not of the Lord, I'm demanded to make repentance. I'm demanded to, to make reconciliation. And we do so by, by going to the priest and having our confession heard and being absolved of our sins. But in the other denominations, if I screwed up, 
I just had to say sorry to God. And that's all that mattered. I didn't have to do anything else. There was no demand of me. If, if I wanted to give worship to God, I, I owed it to him to come to Mass. At least once a week, at least during the Sabbath. To, to give him my worship, to give him my best. The other churches, you know, if I didn't make it, it wasn't the end of the world. They didn't really care. In the Catholic Church, if, like the precepts even, they say like, this is what we owe. We, we owe to him fasting. We owe to him serving the community and the poor. And while those are good things that occur in other churches, they're never demanded of us. And it's actually good that something be demanded of me. That if I'm a coin of Christ, if I'm his image and likeness, then I want something to be demanded of me because I want, I want to have something of purpose. That's not to say, hear me very clearly here, that is not to say that people in other Christian denominations who are fully in with the Lord are horrible people. I'm not saying that. We're not saying that those other churches are evil places. We're not saying that. We're saying that there's truth that exists, but not the completeness of that truth. And that's a hard thing to swallow sometimes, that we may not be totally right about something. My mom, I love her to death, right? I've told, I talk about her all the time. She grew up Methodist, stopped going to church at some point, has not been a priority in her life. Well, it's very exciting to share that last Wednesday she went to her first RCIA class. Really pumped for her. Now she openly admitted this to the priest who's my friend and all the people there. They all know that I'm a priest, so that's daunting. But she openly admitted, she said, you know, I'm here because I know, I, I know there's been something pulling me. There's something that's been asking something of me. But she also is very adamant to explain that she may or may not become Catholic at the end of this year. It may take her a couple of years or three years, and she may never become Catholic. But the thing is, she's trying. She's acknowledging there's a demand in her heart that she's given response to. And that is the best thing that she could do. And that's why I'm so happy for her. And for all of us, it's the same thing. If we give to Caesar, we give to the government, we give to the world what, what's owed to the world, that's fine. But we have to give to God what belongs to him, and it's everything. God really does demand something from us, and that is good. So our challenge is to consider, what have I been neglecting to give to him? What have I been restricting from God because I don't like the demand or I, I need something changed. Same thing, you know, like the idea of all of our sacraments, confession, mass. It's what's due to him. It's what is right. It is what is just. And, and you know, last night I was purifying the vessels and I, I look up and mass is not done. Right? We're, we're, in, we're just following communion. People are hopefully praying. And I look up and I just see people leaving the church. And it just breaks my heart. I'm like, you can't stay five more minutes until the end of the Mass, until the final blessing. And, and of course, things happen. 
once in a while, right? Emergencies come up, situations occur, of course. But when that's our average everyday response, all right, I've, gotten, I've received communion, I'm going to leave now. There's something wrong with that. That's not what is owed to God. And so it's, it really, don't, don't hear him there like, oh, Father Jay feels bad or sad. And like, no, I do. I'm telling you that. But that shouldn't be the motivation for you to stay. Don't, don't let my, my guilt or whatever like motivate you in that sense. The, the lesson there is, why am I cutting short what is owed to him? The same goes for like when we receive communion. If we know, we know with good knowledge that we should not receive communion. We're not in a state of grace. We're not in communion. Why would we do a disservice to God and say, okay, amen, when I'm not in that state of grace, I'm not in that place to receive him well? That probably, and again, this is just, just my thing, so just a grain of salt, why does that bother me so much as a priest? Because for 22 years, and for that particular year I was becoming Catholic, I followed the rules of not receiving communion because I wasn't supposed to. I wasn't able to, in a sense. And there's people I know who are in different life situations that are unable to receive, and they don't out of obedience and out of love for the Lord. So when, when other people just have, you know, flippantly said, like, oh, yeah, I missed Mass last week, and then they come up for communion, and they receive communion, and they're not in a state of grace, that is a total disservice to God. Because it's like, I don't really care about your rules. I just want what I want. But God deserves everything. He deserves my obedience. He deserves my humility. And if I'm meant to be that coin that shows the virtues, it means something in me has to change. Something in me has to, to act differently. Something in me is being demanded that other places, other people, other faiths, it doesn't. I'm, I'm more and more affirmed every single day of my life that, that the Catholic Church is, is the, the true church, that it's the home church. Like, and for the first 1,500 years of the church, that's what it was. Like, there was no debate about this. So history is on our side. But what I, what I want to say, particularly to brothers and sisters from other Christian denominations or people who are not in that state of grace, who, who probably need to go to confession, is that there is a great gift waiting for them. There's a great hope available to them. The fact that God gives us the mercy to forgive us of our faults through, through the sacrament of confession with the priest, whew, amazing. The fact that God has left us his body and blood, soul and divinity, for us to receive in the Eucharist. Amazing. And the fact that the Lord constantly is striving for unity and, and re-cohesion within the church is beautiful. So I, just, I, I put out the invitation, the invitation to all of us, to, to discern more intensely 
what do I need to start owing to God? What needs to change in my life that I can start giving God the best of me? Not the average, not the mediocre, the best. Knowing full well that there will be times where I'm not at my best, but I'm still going to give him what I can. And if those things require changes, those things require demands, that's good. And if I'm not willing to go there yet, then I need to continually pray, why not? You know, my mom's that great example. She's, she's trying. And she may or may not become Catholic at the end of this year or next year or ever, but she's putting in the work. And that's sometimes what the Lord needs the most from us, is to put in the work, to acknowledge something has to be different. The Lord never wants us to be ashamed or embarrassed, but he wants us to know that there is something bigger than ourselves. And that's him. And it's good that it's him. So we need to give to God everything. And, and for each of us, that's going to look different. But we start by self-examining what needs to change, what needs to grow, what am I doing well, and what do I need to continue to do? Because I guarantee that we're actually doing a lot of good. We're doing a lot of things right. But there's some things we can always be better at. So don't we want to grow? Don't we want to be the best to be his coins, to be the models for others, to be inspired? Yes. So, Lord, you get everything because you've given everything.